Hi, Jim. Good to see you. Um, I hate to put a dampener on things right at the start of our episode, Jim, given the roadmap to freedom set out by our Prime Minister last night. Um, but space.com reports that an asteroid the size of the Golden Gate Bridge will whiz past Earth in March. Uh, they do say, and I quote, that although it will be the biggest and speediest asteroid to fly by our planet this year, there's no reason to panic. But as I read that, I thought we've heard that kind of reassuring rhetoric before, haven't we? Oh, fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) They say that trouble always comes in threes. So we'll have had a global pandemic, an asteroid, and then something else will come along. Probably M&S will stop selling Battenberg cake or something. (laughs) That would be an absolute tragedy. Yeah, I mean, things, things can't get much worse, but an asteroid would certainly seal the deal. Um, But it's really good to be back for our third episode of Season 3. In this series, we're thinking about the basic building blocks of society. And in this episode, we're going to think about the role of the media in society in particular. And there's no doubt that organizations like the BBC or CNN have a massive impact on Western societies. The tabloid newspapers in the UK have been credited with winning elections for both New Labour and the Conservative Party over the past few decades. And more recently, we've seen the rise of fake news. We've also seen a huge increase in the popularity of conspiracy theories like QAnon. And I sometimes get the sense that something really fundamental has started to break down in how society understands itself. So in this conversation, Jim, uh, I'd love to explore the power of the media and the impact it has on our culture. And there's no doubt, is there, that the media exerts a really powerful influence in our society. In modern constitutional democracies, uh, there's what's called the separation of powers. If you look at the US, you can think of Congress, the White House, and the Supreme Court. And those three elements represent the legislature, the executive, and the judicial powers in society. Uh, The US Constitution was designed with a set of checks and balances between those three sources of political power. But the media is often called the fourth estate or the fourth power. In many ways, it's as powerful as the government or the judiciary. And one of the things we'll have to discuss, Ollie, is why the media's power has grown and grown in the past 20 years. Yeah, absolutely. And and we should probably start by defining our terms as we begin here. Um, so when we talk about the media, we are thinking of TV broadcasters like the BBC or CNN or Fox News or NBC. Uh, pick, a, pick any platform of your choosing. But we're also thinking of newspapers like The Guardian or The Daily Mail, social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook, which essentially have become news channels for many people. Um, just think about Twitter's decision to ban Donald Trump from tweeting and uh, the impact that had on, on Trump's ability to communicate. Or think about Facebook's decision to block stories that it regards as fake news or hate speech, or even recently when they refused to uh, send their news to Australia uh, or to people in Australia or on their news feeds. Increasingly, anyone who expresses an opinion that is out of step with fashionable ideas is effectively cancelled from the online world. And then lastly, we'll include the entertainment industry because films and TV series promote values and ideologies uh, in a way that seeps into the minds of young adults and teenagers and shapes our worldview in a really subtle and powerful way. If you had given that definition, you know, a long time ago, people would have raised their eyebrows. I mean, they would say, what has entertainment to do with news organizations? Um, 
But as we'll see, there's evidence that the various strands of newscasting and the entertainment industry have morphed into this single great juggernaut that is driving cultural change at bewildering speed. Yeah, and, and the emergence of this incredibly powerful force in society is already having a big impact on Christianity, isn't it? Uh, so, so the media makes it very hard for an authentic Christian voice to actually be heard in the public square. Exactly. The problem is not an easy one to overcome because it's not as if there's an outright ban or anything like that. I mean, the problem really is caused by the way Christianity is framed in the media today. I mean, think of how Christians are portrayed in film or on TV. We're usually presented in one of three ways. I mean, there's the naive, rather stupid idiot figure, you know, like Ned Flanders out of The Simpsons. And then there's the uh, judgmental, unpleasant hypocrite. Uh, I'm sure you remember that famous scene in the TV series called The West Wing uh, when President Bartlett, Bartlett destroys an unpleasant evangelical talk show host. Um, she had quoted that verse in Leviticus 18 about homosexuality. And she is an utterly repellent character. Uh, and then there is the third type, the dangerous fanatic, a sort of evil leader of a cult. Now, I don't even have a TV, so I'm relying on others to tell me there's a series called True Blood, but and it apparently portrays evangelical Christians as bloodthirsty murderers. Um, but, but let's start with news reporting. So how have we got to the point where news journalism has become a problem for Christians seeking to stand for the gospel in the public square? Okay, well, in the course of this conversation, Ollie, I want to set out three answers to that question. Um, and they move from the least important to the most important. And so the first one, the first reason why the cause of Christianity can be damaged by the media is, is what we might call lazy journalism. I mean, far too often journalists simply rehearse cultural prejudices or they replay old caricatures rather than doing any serious listening or any rigorous investigation. Now, is, the interesting thing is that that is actually a very old problem. Um, I, I think there's a, a really interesting little insight into the role of a reporter uh, found in, in the book of Ezra. Uh, that little book in the Old Testament records uh, the rebuilding of the temple after the Babylonian exile. So we're, we're very late in the story of the Old Testament, um, around about 500 BC to 470 BC. And just to remind everyone, um, the Persian emperor had authorized the Jewish people to return from exile uh, so that they could rebuild the temple and eventually the city of Jerusalem. And the rebuilding work starts off with tremendous enthusiasm, but then grinds to a halt. Nothing happens for about 15 years until Haggai and Zechariah come along. Uh, and then the rebuilding work starts up again. Now, the interesting question to ask about that moment in the Old Testament is this. What caused the rebuilding work to stop? And what caused it to restart again? It's obviously a metaphor for the rebuilding of the church, isn't it? You know, I will build my church. And the answer, if you allow a little stretch of language, is good journalism. Uh, in the middle section of Ezra, there are five official government documents recorded. Letters sent between regional government and the central government. And when you read those reports, you get the answer to the question I've just asked. One major report causes the rebuilding work to stop. And then years later, a second major report allows the work to restart. Now, the interesting point is that the first report was fake news, okay, and the second report was a really careful piece of journalism. The first report was a lazy rehearsal of prejudiced views without, made without any investigative work at all. It was by a guy called Rahum. And in contrast, the second report was a very careful piece of journalism. It was based on a rigorous and detailed investigation, and it only reported what was accurate and true. And as a result, the building work was allowed to start up again. 
So I, I find it quite comforting to remember that God's people have had to put up with lazy journalism for centuries. Now, now I'm not excusing the thing, of course, but it has been around for a long time. Yeah, that's. I think that's really cool to to sort of appreciate that. Um, and it's funny. Well, I guess not not funny in reality, but frustrating is maybe a better a better term. But you, you can almost always predict how each news organization will respond or report on a particular story, can't you? Yeah, I find it really frustrating to see uh, journalists run with wearisome predictability along the same set of cultural tramlines in every interview that they conduct. I mean, apart from anything else, it's really boring. Uh, and I think TV journalism is particularly guilty of this sort of laziness, much more so than print journalism. I mean, take the crisis last year over the shortage of protective equipment like face masks in hospitals. Now, anyone who's ever managed a crisis know that crises always expose really deep flaws in, in an organisation. And this COVID crisis has revealed really deep flaws uh, in the way public health England can organise itself. I mean, I'm, I'm not criticising individuals with that comment. I'm just t- talking about a deep cultural issue within the organisation. I mean, the lack of project management capability in the public sector uh, is a profound problem that will take decades to fix. Now, of course, politicians are ultimately responsible for the state of our public sector. So if you want to f- point the finger of blame at a politician over the delivery problems associated with PPE, then you need to go way back into history. You need to interrogate Jeremy Hunt and David Cameron and even Gordon Brown. But of course, we never get that. What happens is, you know, some dramatic music plays and then some attractive auto cue reader tells us something really bad has happened. Let's go over to our special correspondent who, for no apparent reason, is standing outside a hospital in the pouring rain. Uh, the camera then cuts to a slightly less attractive journalist who says, yes, something very bad has happened. And then the autocue merchant nods intelligently before saying, this obviously means that Matt Hancock is an incompetent liar. When will he resign? Now, that sort of lazy journalism dumbs down every issue to the level of, you know, an episode of Thomas the Tank Engine. Yeah, it felt as though I was watching the BBC there as you spoke, Jim. Um, that was a <laughs> that was a, a, an excellent representation. It's important um, to be gracious, isn't it? <laughs> a very Jim-like representation of of the media. Um, but no, I do. I totally see what you're saying there, and certainly um, there are these kind of there is this kind of lazy rehearsal of superficial superficial prejudices, um, and actually that directly affects how Christians are then portrayed in the media, doesn't it? It does. Um, I mean, just think of the casual use of the word controversial or problematic. Um, When someone in the media talks of a controversial Christian preacher, they are emitting a dog whistle, okay, that's code for nasty lunatic who has no place in the modern world. Or, Or think of the careless way that the term homophobe is thrown around. Now, remember, homophobia is a criminal offense. And yet I've seen a principled, rational and courteous objection to homosexuality labelled in the mainstream media as homophobic. Now that's just lazy journalism. It's a rehearsal of cultural prejudice rather than a careful and balanced investigation into what has actually been said. And it's not just Christians who experience that sort of thing, of course. I mean, many religious people get the same treatment. Yeah, the the BBC journalist Emma Bartlett was in the news recently um, after she conducted an interview with the female leader of the Muslim Council of Britain, and she asked a series of hostile questions about why there were no female imams in Britain, uh, without even pausing to consider the deep issues of gender distinctiveness. Yes, the great irony is that she conducted that that interview on women's are, uh, and yet the BBC 
has done more to promote transgenderism than any other mainstream news organization in the Western world. So it's a really good example, Ollie, of the unthinking, lazy rehearsal of progressive values. Now, I, I should point out, Ollie, that I have some dear friends who work for the BBC. Uh, as an organization, it's full of decent, hardworking and immensely talented men and women. But I do stand over the criticism that the culture of the organization, uh, particularly in its London headquarters, is deeply unsympathetic to biblical values. And I do so uh, on the basis of an ob- observations made by Andrew Marr. Okay. Yeah, I think I think uh, I would agree with you there, Jim. So we've thought about the problem of lazy journalism that just unthinkingly rehearses shallow prejudices. What's the second reason why the media has become a barrier to the gospel in this culture? Well, the second reason is much more important, and it's linked to a really profound change that's occurring in society. And, and it's a complicated point, so uh, allow me to build up a picture from the Bible uh, to explain it. Uh, a few days ago, I had the honour of interviewing Oz Guinness, uh, who's a world-renowned uh, cultural critic and author. I mean, he's been one of the most gracious and persuasive Christian voices in the public square for decades, and, and I hold him in, in the highest regard. Yeah, I, I listened to that conversation earlier today, Jim, and you did it as part of a series with Christian Unions Ireland, CUI. Um, and very kindly, CUI have given us permission to release uh, that interview um, via our channels. So I'll put it out in a day or two, but it's a really fascinating conversation. I enjoyed it immensely. Yeah, I, I was hanging on with my fingernails uh, for most of the conversation. But anyway, Oz made the point that our constitutional democracies owe a great deal to the Old Testament model of government. Uh, I mean, it's astonishing to think that, that the rule of law uh, and the separation of powers, those, uh, those are the two great pillars of modern democracies, and they come directly from the Torah and the Old Testament prophets. In the Old Testament, when you think about it, there is this really careful separation of powers. There were prophets and the priesthood and the king and the officials, and each element of society had its own role and its own powers. And it was regarded as a serious sin if those powers became blurred, uh, wasn't it, Jim? So, so, for example, when Saul took on the role of a priest in, in 1 Samuel, he was being careless about the separation of powers between priest and king, and it was that sin that ultimately triggered his downfall. Exactly right. And, and now I think about the prophets. I mean, their job was to speak truth to power. Okay. After King David sins with Bathsheba, he's confronted by Nathan the prophet, who bluntly tells him how grievously he has sinned. And then think of prophets like uh, Elijah and Amos and Isaiah or Micaiah, who undoubtedly is my favorite character in scripture because he's so magnificently sarcastic. But here's the thing. They all spoke truth to power. Now, when you get to the prophet, the book of Jeremiah, you get to watch the collapse of a culture. And the really interesting thing is that what happens first is that the prophets and the priests join up with the king and the officials to create what we might call a ruling elite. Now, the technical term is an oligarchy. Um, So in that model, no one speaks truth to power anymore. The prophets tell convenient lies. The priests become politicians. And eventually the king becomes a puppet figure who's at the mercy of an elite mix of powerful priests and officials. Now, uh, thanks for your patience. That, that, that elaborate story helps me explain, I think, what's going on in our own culture. Because we are seeing the rise of an oligarchy, 
a ruling elite made up of politicians, academics, powerful media barons, and the woke billionaires of Silicon Valley. And that means that no one speaks truth to power anymore because the media are now part of a powerful oligarchy. Uh, Ollie, you're far too young to remember a film called All the President's Men. Uh, it starred Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford, if my memory serves me correctly. And anyway, it was about two journalists who broke the story of President Nixon and the Watergate scandal. So these two journalists effectively brought down a president. Now, I don't think you would get a story like that nowadays because no one speaks truth to power anymore. The media has become part of the powerful ruling elite. To push back a a little bit on that, Jim, some would say the media spent uh, the four years of Donald Trump's uh, administration holding him to account. They might argue that they were speaking truth to power. Yeah, absolutely did. Um, uh, and of course, Trump is an exception because he represents the popular resistance leader to the oligarchy. That, that was how he positioned himself. That's his big selling point, wasn't it? He promised to drain the swamp in Washington. Uh, and you're absolutely right that the progressive left loathed him. So I would argue, in fact, Trump provides good evidence that the ruling elite is a real thing and a united thing that came together to bring him down. In the end, mind you, of course, he brought himself down, didn't he? That's helpful, Jim. So, so how did we get to the point where the media have become part of this ruling elite? That that seems really problematic. What's the kind of story behind it? Okay, well, to answer that question, you need to go back to the middle of the last century, when a group of mostly French intellectuals became really disappointed that Marxism hadn't worked out. The proletariat had not risen up in revolution. In fact, the working class seemed to have become a conservative influence on society, and that drove the intellectuals nuts. So men like Herbert Marcuse and Antonio Gramsci came up with a cunning plan, and their new form of Marxism, I'm going to call it neo-Marxism, it would succeed, like said, using a strategy that Gramsci called a long march through the institutions. So neo-Marxism wouldn't be won by rioting in the streets. It would be won by a long, quiet process of infiltration and eventual dominance of the universities, the media, and all the other institutions that acted as the gatekeepers for Western society. Now, looking back on that, we can see how brilliantly that strategy has worked. The West has been hijacked. Culture change has occurred at bewildering speed because it is being driven by a cultural elite who have seized control of all the big elements of society. And that explains why the media has become part of a ruling elite, an oligarchy, which is determined to drive the ideologies of the progressive left, in other words, the values of neo-Marxism, into every aspect of life. That's really fascinating background, Jim, and certainly makes sense of the situation we see today. And what you're saying is the media's traditional role of speaking truth to power has effectively been jettisoned. And nowadays, the media is effectively an important member of the the cultural elite, uh, the oligarchy that has won all the arguments in the institutions that govern society. Exactly. Um, In his interview with me, Oz Guinness said that Christians were asleep uh, when the long march through the institutions began. And then, back in the 1970s and 80s, when they woke up, they made the fateful decision to fight back against um, the oligarchy, but this time using political populism. But populism never works because culture changes from the top down. So evangelicals have been splashing around in the shallow end of the swimming pool in the arena of political activism, 
when the real battle should have been taking place in the universities and in the upper echelons of the BBC. We should have been doing what the Apostle Paul told us to do, to engage in the battle of ideas, to tear down intellectual strongholds and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. But we either wave placards in the street or we retired into our churches and waited for the return of Christ. So we've thought about the problem of lazy journalism and the fact that the media no longer speaks truth to power because it's become part of of what you've described as the neo-Marxist oligarchy. What's your third reason why the media is an obstacle to the cause of the gospel? The third reason is the deepest one of them all. Uh, And our previous two episodes on expressive individualism and critical theory will help us understand it. Um, There was some method to our madness, you see. The deepest problem here, to quote the prophet Jeremiah, is that truth has perished. There is no such thing as truth in our society anymore. Expressive individualism teaches us that truth is nothing more than a deep personal conviction. And critical theory teaches us that every truth claim is just a bid for power. So we live in a culture where there is no such thing as truth anymore. There are only feelings and a struggle for social power. So let's let's break that analysis down a little bit more and think about each of our two previous episodes in turn. Okay. We'll start with the rise of the modern self. We have turned inside ourselves to find out what is ultimately real in life. So the society you inhabit, Ollie, encourages you to reject the idea that you're a creature who uses reason to grapple with objective reality. Instead, you're encouraged to generate your own truth through a process of introspection. Technically, the term is constructivism. So truth, in the sense of ultimate reality, must now come from within, generated from the deepest convictions I find within my own heart. So the world out there becomes like a blank canvas on which I project my own moral reality. There's a German philosopher called Johann Gottfried Herder, and he once said, The artist has become a creator god. Truth emerges from the human heart, from its desires and longings. We then project that truth onto the world around us. Okay, So the long-standing notion of truth as a description of objective reality has been knocked down. It's been reduced to the idea that truth is just a set of convictions that walk on the water of our deepest feelings. And if that's how expressive individualism attacks the concept of truth, what about our second episode on critical theory? How does critical theory do the same? Well, remember, we, we said that critical theory reduces everything to power. So the lived experience of the oppressed groups in society trumps every rational argument. In actual fact, they don't even need to argue their case because the whole system of rationality is rigged against them. All they need to do is demand. So critical theory teaches us that every truth claim is nothing but a bid for power. Now, let's put those two things together. When you put the two ideologies together, you see how the whole concept of truth has been destroyed in our society. As Isaiah said, truth has stumbled in the public square. As Jeremiah says, truth has perished from our lips. And when you think about our world in that way, you can see why fake news has become so commonplace. You can also begin to see why conspiracy theories like QAnon become increasingly attractive to people who feel so powerless against this uh, powerful ruling elite uh, the combination of the media, politicians, and, and academics. Yes. I think the American story has a great deal to teach us uh, in this part of the world. I mean, I, 
As you know, Ollie, I love the drama of election night. So on the night of the presidential election, I sat up all night surrounded by social media feeds and TV news channels on two screens that sat on my kitchen table. Uh, I think you did as well, didn't you? I stayed up. I stayed up most of the night, not quite as long as you. Uh, I think you no. definitely have the record. Yeah, you have no resilience at all. <laughs> uh, anyway, after it became clear that Trump had lost, uh, I watched Fox News begin to construct the narrative that the election had been rigged. I mean, a series of correspondents made these wild allegations with no real evidence about vote tampering, votes being stolen, voter impersonation, and so on. And it was cynically done. And I heard myself saying out loud in the kitchen, this is wicked. Okay, Clever people were constructing fake news that they knew would drive millions of ordinary decent Americans into the dark labyrinth of conspiracy theories. And I suppose that story helps us understand as, as Christians what our job in the world should be. In a world that's full of fake news, in a world where the media has become part of this oligarchy Actually, it's our job as Christians to stand for truth. That's exactly right. Our job is not to fight fire with fire. Our job actually is not even to defend our historic rights. It's simply to stand for truth in the public square. So we must always be fair to our opponents, work hard to understand them and see through their arguments. Don't drink the Kool-Aid offered by the BBC and the Guardian and the New York Times, but at the same time, never misrepresent them. Never promote unfair prejudices about them. And we shouldn't try to use political muscle. We should just stand for truth. As the Lord Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no, no. So we should be patient and courteous and unflinchingly truthful. Because in the end, only the truth will stand. A society that rejects truth is doomed. So the oligarchy that I've been talking about, this thing that looks like this giant juggernaut that crushes everything in its path, will turn out to be like Goliath. In other words, it will fall to the ground. Um, at some point, we'll get to cut its head off. But for now, we stand for truth. Thank you, Jim, and thank you to you all for listening. Uh, Jim mentioned earlier his discussion with Oz Guinness, and keep an eye out on our social media channels for that. Uh, it'll effectively become a bit of a bonus episode. Uh, in season three next week we're back jim and we're going to address the issue of language and we'll think a little bit about how the way uh, we use language reflects where we are as a society and how we as christians live in what has become uh, a bit of a minefield um so really looking forward to uh, that conversation uh, but for now uh, have a very good rest of your week and we'll speak again soon